Thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much, Dan. Uh, Dan has been given special ministerial dispensation to sleep during this sermon. Nobody else has that dispensation. And circumstances are, are quite special. So thanks very much for, for leading there this evening, Dan. A church youth group that has grown up together for a few years and developed a good, strong fellowship and close friendship, engaged in some outreach as a result of which some other kids from the area started coming into the youth group. They were very different. They weren't really what could be referred to as church kids. But they came, and although at times they proved to be a bit of a handful and a bit of a challenge, they they felt accepted and they enjoyed what went on. They started bringing some of their friends. However, the trouble was that little by little, the church kids stopped coming. They felt that it wasn't really their place anymore. The other kids in some ways spoiled what they had. Another church that had been growing old together for for decades called the New Minister. His emphasis was very much on outreach and service and gradually all sorts of new people started coming to the church. People, many of whom were known around the town as perhaps a little bit difficult or different or odd. People who maybe didn't fit in socially. And that led to a reaction by the established members who started complaining that their fellowship had been disrupted and that these unreliable, demanding new attenders were taking up all the energy of the leadership and had spoiled what had been there before. (coughs) Eventually, at one meeting, a leading member stormed out and told the minister that if things continued going this way, then no one would be left in this church apart from him and his misfit friends. Now those were sort of conflations of true stories that I have come across in more than a couple of places over the years. And they reflect the tension between those who see the church as a place of comfortable fellowship and almost refuge from the undesirable realities of the world And those who see the church primarily as a place of welcome for those who are in all sorts of need. Well, last time we looked at Acts, Christoph explained a little bit from those famous verses at the end of chapter 2, what the life of the early church was like. It was a place of real community, real sharing, real praying, real growing together. And then in chapter 3, we see the coziness disrupted. From comfort, they are led to confrontation. First of all, confrontation with real need. And then before long, confrontation with organized opposition and persecution. This chapter, chapter 3, completes, I believe, an important triangle in the life of the early church. Luke shows that when any church is moved by God's Holy Spirit, 
three things begin to happen. And you'll see them coming up on the screen. When the Spirit moves in a church, first of all, we see in Acts 2, 1-41, people turn in repentance to God. Secondly, people turn with affection and fellowship towards one another. The end of Acts chapter 2. And now thirdly, when the Spirit moves in a church, we see that people turn with compassion towards the needy. Now there is, of course, a clear link here with what I had to preach about a couple of weeks ago in terms of the relationship between evangelism and social action. If you were here that morning, you might remember how I looked at different ways in which we could see the relationship between evangelism and social action. And I commented how that I saw them biblically as very much being interdependent. That one without the other fell seriously short in terms of what type of witness Christ demanded us to bear for him here on earth. And so evangelism without a degree of practical concern was not true biblical evangelism. And social concern without any gospel message was not really true concern for the person. Well, here we see another example of this lived out in the activity of the early church. Chapter 3 is a chapter of word and deed. Or rather, in terms of how it is presented here, it is a chapter of deed and word. Peter heals and Peter preaches. So as God's Spirit moves, turning the disciples towards the needy with compassion... They engage in two very important progressions. First, as we saw, their inward renewal, their spiritual lives that were being stoked up in that fellowship and sharing and having all things in common with one another, progressed to outward service. And then in this incident, their deeds of mercy progressed into words of explanation. However, it's the effect of what happens in chapter 3 that I want to concentrate on this evening. What we will see is that the effect of this incident was contrastingly different among different people. First of all, for the disciples, encountering the beggar moved them to compassion and action. The disciples were moved with compassion and action. I've already touched on this. They didn't need to choose between the scenarios that I mentioned in those churches at the start of the sermon. It wasn't a case of the church either being a cozy Christian clique or being left to flounder amid the misery of the world. For them, spirit-empowered fellowship, chapter 2, automatically led to spirit-empowered action and preaching of chapter 3. One commentator has said that the path of significant prayer leads us straight to and through human misery. The path of significant prayer, like that engaged in by the disciples in chapter 2, doesn't lead us around and avoiding human misery as an escape from it but actually leads us straight to it and through it. 
So their actions with the beggar start a series of important encounters and acts that illustrate a very important aspect of Luke's message. This incident with the beggar starts a series where we see that the outcast and the poor have a special place in the purposes of Luke, of course, has emphasized that in his gospel. It's the gospel that concentrates on Jesus' interactions with those who are, who are poor and, and outcast. And now in Acts, his second volume, he shows how that continued the apostles. Think about it. Those rejected as unworthy for worship in the old religion, those that were specifically banished to the outer courts of the temple, suddenly, immediately in the earliest days of the church, find acceptance and embrace in the name of Jesus. A beggar begging outside. Women who were banished to the court of women. An Ethiopian eunuch who could not be part of the old religious family. Gentiles. Whoever they are, we see them being embraced by the early church. From comfort to confrontation. Confrontation with sickness. Confrontation with the need of those who had no hope. So what do the disciples do? Well, they heal and they explain. The response of the beggar is both faith and healing. I want to spend a little more time on this one. Because there are about to be some questions that arise in our minds at this point. If the disciples healed and preached, to what extent should we be engaged in the type of healing ministry that they were engaged in? Surely there's something lacking if we only do one part of that. Well, let me say at the outset that I do believe that today's church needs to exercise the healing aspect of the apostolic ministry. That God does heal today. That the prayer of the righteous person, James chapter 5, and the exercise of spiritual gifts by those who have been given that gift of healing, 1 Corinthians 12, can be used by God to bring about temporary healing this side of heaven from the pain and suffering of this world in order to glorify God and as a sign of God's ongoing sovereignty over creation. It can and it should be done. But is it always so? Is it the case that every encounter must be a healing encounter? Well, quite clearly and evidently not. There are always those people, godly people, people of faith, people of prayer, who for whatever reason are not healed, there always have been those people and there always will be. Yes, Paul, for example, performed a number of healing miracles in the book of Acts, but there's evidence in the New Testament that others were not healed and certainly not immediately healed. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, someone who Paul calls a dear brother, a fellow soldier, he had a lingering serious illness. That led him low for quite some time. Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4. Paul says 
not that he healed Trophimus, but that he left him behind in Miletus sick. Paul himself had a sickness he calls a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. He says he prayed about this for years, that it would be away, but it wasn't because God told him, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, I don't know if, if this is immediately relevant to many of you this evening. I'm not sure that maybe too many of you are necessarily perplexed because you're not spending a lot of time healing people. But I'm mentioning this because one day it very, may very well be relevant. One day you may fall ill and you may wonder if it is because of some sin or lack of faith on your part that you have not been healed. Or probably more likely, one day you may encounter, as I did this week, some dear Christian brother or sister who tells you that you should have the gift of healing. And that this gift is available to everyone in spite of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, do all have the gift of healing? No. And even more, they, they will tell you that it is not God who heals it is you who heals. God gives you the authority to say to someone, I heal you in the name of Jesus. When if that dear Christian brother had only read Acts chapter 3, our passage this evening, he would have seen that Peter says the exact opposite in verses 12. Men of Israel, why does it surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And then verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. So yes, this is all very fresh in my memory this week, but it is relevant to understanding what's going on in chapter 3. And what I want us to do is just bear a few things in mind when it comes to this particular subject. First of all, the evidence of Scripture is that not everyone is healed the way this man was healed. Secondly, even today, many alleged miracles of healing tend to be of the psychosomatic type or of complaints that would have healed with time anyway, and the healing was an acceleration of that process. There do not seem to be the examples of this type of immediate, complete healing of a totally congenital disorder from physiologically lame to running and leaping in an instance. Yes, you will hear second-hand reports from remote parts of the world, but balanced Christians you speak to even in those countries will tell you that medical proven examples of those types of congenital disorders being reversed are extremely rare. I'm not going to stand here and say God can't do it or won't do it. I'm just saying that the evidence is extremely rare. And most of the hype around the, the healings tends to be around those that are much more difficult to pin down or prove medically. Thirdly, as we saw at the start, this is a chapter about deed and word. The healing was a visual aid for what was to come. And what was to come was the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. What was to come was the declaration that this beggar now had a place in God's kingdom. 
What was to come was the challenge to all who saw what happened, not just to stand there with their mouths open, but to repent and believe. Is it not significant that eight verses are devoted to the healing, while twice as many are devoted to the sermon? Is it also not interesting that Luke, with only a limited space of papyri, gives a lot of space in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and especially in Acts 7 to long sermons or speeches from the apostles? You see, for Luke, the most important thing was what this healing signified. In some ways, he's saying that we shouldn't, as Peter said, why are you surprised at this? He's not majoring in the miracle. He's saying, you know, God can do this sort of thing. What he wanted to emphasize was the message of the coming of the kingdom of God that the healing pointed to. Now this highlights a significant problem I have with the type of health theology that I mentioned earlier. When I listened to that dear brother speaking at length to me this week, what I heard was a lot about healings and miracles and what he had done and what comrades had done. But I didn't hear very much about Jesus. The message didn't seem to follow the apostolic pattern of hold on. Don't marvel at this. We didn't do this. It was God whose son Jesus was crucified because of your sin. Therefore, because he has shown you this great mercy, in spite of what you've done, repent and believe and turn from your wicked ways. That didn't seem to be the pattern that I heard from this dear brother. The pattern seemed to be, yes, we do also have the power to heal. So form a line and if you have faith in Jesus, you too will be healed. Now that's a lot more of attractive of a message than repent and turn from your wicked ways. The promise of healing is a much better dividend than the way of the cross that Jesus tells his disciples to pick up and carry. And when he specifically warns them that they're going to be hated and beaten and dragged before the authorities and they're going to suffer all kinds of things for his sake. It's diametrically different. Which leads me to say with caution... Because it's not language that I'm prone to using. If you know me, you'll know that's the case. But it leads me to say that the teaching that faith in Jesus means you must be well, you must be healed, you must prosper, and that we must share in all the benefits of Christ's atonement and resurrection here and now, that is another gospel. It's not what is preached in Acts. And just as I have problems with those who will be dogmatic and say God cannot heal today, I'm also extremely concerned about those who say he must. One final thing on this subject of healing is that by majoring on the physical, we can detract from the real benefits of the gospel. Physical healings, of course, are always temporary. Those healed fell ill again. Those raised from the dead died again. But the spiritual benefits of the gospel are eternal. And again, I felt that 
If only those dear brothers spent as much time encouraging conversions as they did promoting healings, then so much more would be done for the kingdom and so much less confusion would result. Any conversion stories I heard of from that ministry, it was difficult to know to what or to whom they had been converted. Was it to the healer? Was it to the prospect of perpetual health? Or was it really a humble repentance and turning to the Son of God for forgiveness? Well, enough on that slight sidetrack. There are issues that I'm sure are raised in our minds when we read the Acts of the Apostles. We have seen that the effect of this situation on the disciples was compassion and action, that the effect on the beggar was healing and faith, uh, clear faith in Jesus. We see that from verse 16. But there were two other effects mentioned in this part of the book. The crowd in verse 10 were astonished and amazed. And the authorities in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of the next chapter, were disturbed and anger. It was anger and hostility. Now, I'm not going to deal with that last one because that's Christoph's sermon for next week. But it's just worth putting a marker down that the work of God will always elicit two main responses. Some will be filled with appropriate awe and wonder, while others will be hostile and angry. It's also worth noting that while it was the miracle that astonished the crowd, so Peter then explains it, it was the message that angered the authorities. If you go around healing people, it's unlikely that you will receive much opposition. Nobody's against being healthy. But chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 doesn't say that the authorities objected to the miracle, but that the hostility started as the disciples were speaking, and it was based on the fact that they were teaching about Jesus. A health clinic will be welcomed, but a spiritual surgery will be violently opposed by any who fear that their power base in the community is being undermined or that they're being told in any, of, in any way whatsoever that they need to change. Now this may not be totally irrelevant to where we're at at Kirkpatrick Memorial at the moment in terms of the process I told you and introduced you to about a couple of weeks ago. As we embark on church community and change, as we listen to the community needs and discern what action we should be taking. It's very unlikely that we'll receive much opposition. I imagine people will be delighted that the church is taking an interest in them and in their needs. However, since as I explained our social action is gospel social action, our social action is fed by and then feeds an ongoing evangelistic vision. Our social action comes with a message. A message that however we communicate it contains the bottom line imperative repent and believe. It's likely that at that point we could well incur some opposition. There could be those who say lay off the religious stuff or in the interests of equality, inclusiveness and tolerance, don't say anything that might be regarded as exclusivist or offensive. 
And if we are to be true to our calling as gospel people, we'll have to say at that point, sorry, this is who we are. This is the message we must bring in love and in the name of Christ. Chapter 4 says more about that, so I'd better leave it there. The fact remains that the people in the main in chapter 3 were astonished and amazed at what had happened. And so Peter takes time to explain to them what on earth is going on. He preaches the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God about? How does he explain what has just happened to this beggar? Does he say that the kingdom of God is about healing and health? No. Peter doesn't say, men of Israel, form a line and give me your medical history. He tells them about their sin, about their rejection of the Christ. He uses two wonderful, unforgettable phrases of contrast in verses 14 and 15. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He then goes on to summarize with reference to key Old Testament passages how this was God's plan from the time of Moses through Samuel and all the prophets to send him a special servant who would fulfill God's purposes and bring his people back to him. And that how even their evil actions and crucifying him were part of the plan of atonement whereby this Christ, rather than being a victorious king, would, verse 18, be one who came as a suffering servant. All of this, says Peter, has grave implications for you, the hearers. And it is this, folks, tonight that comes down through the years to us. That's why I want to conclude with Peter's message to the crowd and its significance for us. Very few of us are going to be called this week to respond to congenitally crippled beggars ministering immediate healing. But all of us, all of us are responsible for how we respond to Christ and how we make his message known. So it may do no harm to check that we understand what Peter was saying here and that we tick the boxes. First of all, there was an acknowledgement of personal involvement and guilt in the crucifixion of Jesus. <coughs> now, as Dan pointed out, some of those that were listening may well have actively taken part in that, but not all of them. In fact, very few of them would have had any active part in hammering the nails in or handing him over. And most of them probably couldn't have done anything to prevent what, had taken, what was taking course in front of them. And yet Peter says, you are guilty. Why? They could say, nothing to do with me. I didn't ask the Romans to do it. I didn't ask the Jewish leaders to, to hand him over. Peter says, it's because of of the sin of the human race in which we all share that he was put there on the cross. <coughs> that means that you're guilty 
even though you didn't betray him, even though you didn't hand him over or drive the nails into his hands. Guilty. So are we. He was crucified for our sin. But secondly, there is the opportunity of repentance. God overlooks ignorance. He overlooks any past guilt of rejecting him. (coughs) Excuse me. He overlooks, as Dan pointed out, even the sin of putting those nails in the hand. But now there's a window of opportunity. Now that we know the length that God has gone to in spite of our sin and our undeserving nature. In spite of the fact that we have rejected him in the past, we now know that rejection of him carries much more serious consequences because we've seen the lengths that he went to to help us. In the past, verse 17, God understood. But now, verse 23, 23, choosing to ignore the claims of Christ, choosing to ignore the call of Jesus, the promised prophet and Messiah, will lead to a permanent cutting off, an alienation from him. Thirdly, repentance can lead to a complete wiping away of our sin. Friends, I think this is one of the most powerful images of salvation in the scriptures. At least, at least I find it that way. In the common papyri of this time, the ink didn't soak into it. It sort of rested on top of the page. So a bit of water could wipe the page clean. If I had had access to the right equipment this evening, I would have liked to have brought in one of those whiteboards used in training seminars to have set it up on an easel here at the front and to have taken a marker pen and written on that easel all the sins that you could possibly think of. Anger, lust, adultery, dishonesty, injustice, selfishness, hatred, prejudice, murder, vindictiveness, bitterness, judgmentalism. Write them all up there. Cover the whiteboard. And then with one sweep of a damp cloth, make it entirely white again. Make it disappear. Because if you've got the right sort of marker pen and the right sort of whiting board, you can do that more than chalk on a blackboard. You can actually make it stain again with one wipe. And it's all gone. The powerful image behind this Greek word of what happens when we turn to Christ for forgiveness. It's all gone. Wiped out. The Greek word zexalifo. Gone. Purged. I don't know what might be burdening any of you this evening. Or whether there's something that for some of you for years has prevented you from taking the simplest of steps to Christ in repentance. Somehow you have felt that it's too much. Well, it's not. Let me plead with you tonight. It can be wiped off that board. Gone. Fourthly, Peter promises times of refreshing to those who repent. I don't have time now to go into all the possible explanations of that phrase, but I think it means more than just the gospel age, the days that we're living in. Peter is referring to these days today, the new era, 
after the first advent of Christ, which was just in the recent past for Peter that he was preaching about, and before the second advent that he predicts in verse 20. But he speaks plural times of refreshing. I think that points to the fact that when in history or in the local life of a community of faith there is a widespread repentance and turning to Christ, there is a refreshing that comes with that. In fact, specific periods of pronounced refreshing. God doesn't wipe away sins, doesn't remove something without filling that vacuum, giving something in return. In this case, a refreshing of the Spirit. And then finally and fifthly, there, he told them that they could be heirs of the covenant promises. As Christoph taught the boys and girls this morning, a promise is of no value unless you experience the reality of what has been promised. And Peter encouraged hearers to enjoy the full benefits of all that was promised in years past. And that they weren't to be satisfied, in this case as many of them were, with just being a Jew, being part of some religious community, some tradition. But rather that they were to internalize and own the full spiritual blessings of all that God intended to offer. So you see the progression that has been made in this chapter, and it is a progression. From mere physical healing to full forgiveness and covenantal spiritual blessings and all that renewal and refreshing can bring. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. That's what this poor beggar was being inducted into. The miracle of physical restoration pointed the way to the even greater miracle of spiritual reconciliation. The healing of this beggar was a dramatic visual aid, but it was also a very specific and wonderful fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 say this, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy as that man ran leaping, dancing into the real temple, temple throughout the temple courts. He was fulfilling Isaiah 35. But how does that chapter, how does that prophecy end? It ends with a much bigger and a much broader vision. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee. It speaks of their ransomed. Of those who have not just been physically healed, but have been bought back from darkness. And whose destiny is far greater than a healed earthly body in an earthly kingdom, but rather their destiny is of a place where they'll live forever, where there will be no more sorrow or sighing, no more weeping, sickness or death. For as John puts it, the former things have passed away. That's going to be the place of wholeness. But until then, 
Until then, we have been entrusted with an amazing message. A message of hope, of forgiveness. And like the disciples, we have been given in the Holy Spirit the power to proclaim that right in the middle of the brokenness and misery of our world. Let's make sure we do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you move in our hearts. Make us responsive to need. Give us compassion for those who have no hope. Help us to bring the saving and truly healing power of your gospel message into those lives. Lord, if there be those who are sick here this evening physically, we do pray in the name of Jesus that you would reach down and heal them. And Lord, if there are those here this evening who have like Paul asked for that healing and can't understand why it has not been given. We pray that your word to Paul would be strong to them. My grace is sufficient for you and that they would know quantities of that grace that even the rest of us cannot understand. And for all of us, that we would know your spiritual healing. That you would rescue us from despair and guilt and shame. That we would see our hearts like that whiteboard with all that stuff that drags us down wiped out. And may we leave this place if not externally, then certainly internally leaping with joy at what you've done in our lives. And to you be the glory. In Jesus' name.